Hello, you sentient balls of stardust. Welcome to Struggle Care. I'm your host, Casey Davis. I'm taking a break this August, but I wanted to play for you some of my most downloaded episodes. This episode is with Dr. Leslie Cook. She is an amazing psychologist who has experience working with children and adults. She specializes in ADHD, autism spectrum disorders, learning disabilities, and the like. She has extensive experience providing professional trainings in this area and has a lot of really great things to say. So in this episode, she and I got together to talk about self-compassion. And in particular, is too much self-compassion a thing? Can you enable yourself or enable others by giving too much compassion? If you've ever wondered this, stay tuned. Get a drink of water. Take care of yourself. I'm here with my good friend, Dr. Leslie Cook. Say hello, Leslie. Hey, it's nice to be here again. If you're tuning in with us, you probably heard Dr. Leslie Cook last week because I had her on to talk about executive functioning and I invited her back and I had this great idea that we were going to talk about weaponized incompetence. And then as we got closer to the recording, I remembered we already did a recording on weaponized incompetence. And so I'm going to call an audible and and pepper Leslie with Q&As that we're going to answer together. That How sounds, you feel about that? That sounds great. I cannot wait. Excellent. Okay. So I just want to jump right in because I've got some fascinating ones. Here we go. So as you know, much of my, I'm just going to start with a real spicy one. Is that okay? Yeah, that sounds great. All right. So as you know, my, my content on TikTok is primarily about home care, self-care, mental health, and self-compassion, right? All about sort of recognizing how many things in our life we feel like failures about and then being able to internalize like that struggling with that thing doesn't make me a failure. Mm -hmm. What often happens when I talk about this is I get I get a lot of feedback that says like, oh, thank you. I feel so much better. Thank you. I'm operating so much better in my home. Thank you. This really helps. But I occasionally will get people that have a similar reaction to this commenter. Okay. And so she actually commented twice. And the first time was when I asked for people who wanted to do Q and A's. And this is what she said. I think it's great to help people get past feelings of failing for not doing maximum levels of housework. But I hope you also teach that when someone is using these struggle care techniques to survive, they need to also be facing how to get out of crisis, not having more kids or adding to their load while they forgive themselves for mess and allowing for doing less. They need to also get real about getting their life to a more manageable place. All right, so here's the second comment. This was on a different video. Your videos have me spiraling this week because I'm worried some people, not you, are getting the message to forgive themselves too much and really not doing enough, really failing their kids. I hope you'll keep reinforcing the part about how to do what needs to be done versus doing too much or nothing. And this comment, first of all, thank you to this commenter for commenting this because I can tell that she's having a legitimate sort of emotional reaction. She's not trying to be any type of way, right? And I just, it's been rattling around in my brain and I've been having trouble finding the words for what it brings up or what I'm seeing in it. So I'm just curious your thoughts off the top of your head. I think in both of those comments, um, I do I do a lot of parenting work and I almost feel like I hear a version of some of these early parenting messages that perhaps people receive when they're younger. And when we are under stress, a lot of those early messages tend to just come out all of a sudden. So when I hear that, I almost hear, you know, it's okay to take a break on your homework today, but don't forget, you, you can't get too far behind. So you need to keep going to reach this optimal level. So part of me wonders if, if that's an old message. 
Um, and the other part of me wonders, when we work with very young children, especially during their developmental period, we always meet them where they are, right? So if a child is learning to walk, our first statement isn't, you know, it's okay that you're crawling, but we gotta, we gotta get to this walking phase. We have this understanding that crawling, you know, rolling leads to creeping, leads to crawling, leads to walking. But as adults, I think sometimes we forget that, that it's okay to meet ourselves with compassion where we are today, even if where we are today is non-functional. That doesn't stop our progress. In fact, it's an incredibly important starting point, and it can be freeing to do that. I hear a lot of fear in this comment. Um, and, and my initial reaction when I saw this comment was that this person is perhaps either a child who was not cared for in the way that they deserve by their parents, or is perhaps someone that knows someone who is not giving an adequate or functional amount of care to their children, mm -hmm. right? Like, I really didn't read this as someone who's like, I, I really want permission to be judgmental, because sometimes that's what people mean, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, they feel like it's okay to extend compassion or teach people self-compassion up to a point. But they have this like line in their head where it's like, but if you're doing X, you are you should not be using self-compassion on yourself. You should be feeling shame, um, which I think just goes back to this idea that ultimately, as much as we say that shame is not a good motivator long term, um, that ch that shame isn't the best change agent that we have. And in fact, it most often backfires and, and stalls out change. That I think underlying belief is really hard to root out. And I feel like this is where it comes to the surface. Yeah, It's like, okay, I, it's okay for us to be self-compassionate about not getting our dishes done. But what about that mom who just left their kid in a dirty diaper for 12 hours and now they have, you know, open sores on their bottom? Like they're not allowed to be self-compassionate, right? And so we get into this place of, well, what do we mean by self-compassion? What do we think self-compassion does? Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of where my brain goes with it. Yeah, I think, I, I think what I'm hearing and what you're saying too is there's some belief that's tied up with fear. If I have compassion for myself, I'm afraid that I could become that person if I let myself versus I think one of the messages from, from your content across all platforms is giving yourself self-compassion radically, unequivocally where you are is less likely to lead you there, that it's more likely to free you to imagine where you could be next. So let's just take a minute and actually talk about like a definition of self-compassion because probably there's people listening that are going, well, I don't even know what that is, okay? So I'm gonna read you a definition of self-compassion. This is from Dr. Kristen Neff. She's sort of the pioneer of a self-compassion research. Um, let me see here. She talks about the three elements of self-compassion. So number one is self-kindness versus self-judgment. It says self-compassion entails being warm and understanding towards ourselves when we suffer, fail, feel inadequate, rather than ignoring our pain or flagellating ourselves with self-criticism. Self-compassionate people recognize that being imperfect, failing, and experiencing life difficulties is inevitable, so they tend to be gentle with themselves when confronted with painful experiences rather than getting angry when life falls short of set ideals. Mm -hmm. 
People cannot always be or get exactly what they want. When this reality is denied or fought against, suffering increases in the form of stress, frustration, and self-criticism. When this reality is accepted with sympathy and self-kindness, greater emotional equanimity is experienced. Number two, common humanity versus isolation. So frustration at not having things exactly the way we want is often accompanied by an irrational but pervasive sense of isolation as if I were the only person suffering or making mistakes. All humans suffer. The very definition of being human means that one is mortal, vulnerable, and imperfect. Therefore, self-compassion involves recognizing that suffering and personal inadequacy is part of the shared human experience. It doesn't just happen to me alone. And then number three, mindfulness versus over-identification. Self-compassion also requires taking a balanced approach to our negative emotions so that feelings are neither suppressed nor exaggerated. This equilibrated stance stems from process of relating personal experiences to those who are also suffering and thus putting ourselves in a larger perspective. It also stems from the willingness to observe our negative thoughts and emotions with openness and clarity so that they are held in mindful awareness. Mindfulness is a non-judgmental, receptive mind state in which one observes thoughts and feelings as they are without trying to suppress or deny them. We cannot ignore our pain and feel compassion for it at the same time. At the same time, mindfulness requires that we not be over-identified. Is 2024 bringing exciting or unexpected changes to your life? Here's a secret weapon to help you face those challenges with more confidence. A great term life insurance policy. I can't believe that I am 37 years old and I am excited about life insurance, but life comes at you fast. I feel like yesterday I was 25 and I wasn't thinking about stuff like this. But when my husband and I got married and we started having kids, it was one of the first conversations that he brought up. Really, Fabric by Gerber Life makes it simple to protect your family's financial future so you can focus on what's ahead, knowing your family is protected if something else unexpected happens. And I feel like I sleep better at night knowing that if something were to happen to he or I, that the other one could take care of our family. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. It's all online and on your schedule. No appointments, scheduling, or piles of paperwork. Just apply when it's convenient for you. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. So don't be somebody who finds when tragedy strikes, you're wishing that you would have made this choice. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at Meet fabric.com slash struggle. That's meetfabric.com slash struggle. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash struggle. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. I'm someone who happens to believe that the chore of feeding myself is one of the most annoying care tasks. And that's why I really like Factor. And when I say I really like Factor, I mean, they shipped me some food and told me to eat it and make an ad. And I not only did that, but then I went back and spent my own money and bought more of them. And I can't wait till the box gets here. That's because Factor really does make eating easier. And this was on the heels of a doctor's appointment where I got very strict instructions to give my body better nutrients. So wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. And they actually do taste good. You'll get over 35 different options a week to choose from. And even I, a very picky eater, always can find something that I like. I love that they are two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. They all take two minutes in the microwave. Snacks, smoothies, breakfast, dinner. You can discover a wide variety of easy options. 
Sign up and save now. We've done the math. Factor is actually less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. My own dietitian was stoked when I told her that I had made this decision. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. So head over to factormeals.com slash struggle50 and use code struggle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while the subscription is active. That's code struggle50 at factormeals.com slash struggle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while the subscription is active. Even my husband says this is the best he's ever tried. And we've tried a lot of these. So self-compassion, I think part of what I'm sort of hearing in this is that I think some people misconstrue that self-compassion means permission Mm -hmm. for the behavior you're experiencing. Mm Mm-hmm. And when you think about permission, that's an attachment to something, not this kind of observational lens that we're talking about. So if it's there's cups all over my house that have old coffee in them and I'm allowed to do that and I give myself permission and I don't care what impact that has on me or anybody else. That's a that's an anxious attachment to that as a way to not have to feel as a way to get away from my feelings or standing back and being an observer that is not attached to that, I can come from a place of compassion, which is like, wow, this is really a challenge for me. Here's the story of how this impacts me and other people. And there's no attachment. There's no end to that story. I'm free. So I love that I also, of that detached observer. Well, and I'm just curious, like the actual definition of compassion. Let's look it up. Okay. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see. All right. Sympathetic pity. I don't love the word pity, but let's go with it. And concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of an, of others. Ooh, I love the sympathetic concern for the sufferings of others. So what what we're talking about when we say self-compassion is a sympathetic and I would say sympathetic by nature is gentle, mm-hmm. right? A gentle concern for the suffering of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right? And I also just think about compassion in general, like this idea that compassion has to be permission or that it will give permission if we're too compassionate. But like, I have felt compassion for people and permission at the same time, right? Like I've looked at moms who are struggling or young men who are struggling or really anyone and been like, they're giving themselves too hard of a time. They actually should be giving themselves permission to rest, right? But I think sometimes we don't recognize that we're doing two things at once. I'm having compassion for their struggle and I'm feeling sort of permissive or wanting to give them the the quote unquote permission to rest or do whatever or let go of the dishes in the sink, right? But I don't know about you, but like I can I have had compassion for people that I was not giving permission to. Mm-hmm. Like I've listened to Actually, I just heard one recently, and I don't know how accurate the facts of the story is, but I'm just reacting to as if the facts of the story were what I heard. It was this woman who was talking in a court case, and I'm going to do a just a trigger warning because I'm going to talk about some child abuse, but I'm not going to be graphic. She was describing to the judge in graphic details how she had abused one of her children in horrible ways. And she's crying as she says it. And at first, you're just like horrified. And then you learn that what's happening is that this child was doing the same things or abusing her younger baby, like in really horrific, sadistic ways. And this mom is sort of like crumbling in the courtroom saying like, I was trying to say, 
you know, you don't like it when someone does this to you and then doing it to him. This child eventually died from the abuse. Mm -hmm. Now, no part of that do I feel is acceptable, permissive, okay. And yet I found myself listening to this mom who was clearly in pain, who was like thinking about her infant being harmed and tortured continuously and was kind of at her wit's end and was clearly not equipped mm -hmm. mentally, not supported. Like I felt compassion. I think that that's an area that we really struggle with, at least in our culture at this time, is the duality of many things that you can be this and that at the same time. And in fact, that's important to be able to separate our compassion and whether we are signing on to something or saying, oh yeah, we throw our hands up, that's fine. Um, I do find that a lot of folks are really struggle with that with others, but especially with themselves. Well, and I mean, I also felt compassion for that child that mm -hmm. had passed away, right? Like that should not have happened to him. He deserved better, right? And you have compassion for this tiny little infant, right? Who has no one to protect them except the person that's protecting them in a way that's like not functional at all. Yeah. So those are kind of the things that it brings to mind. And specifically going back, like, let's talk about, I saw a, a video recently of a person who kind of was saying, gosh, I'm my neighbor's kids, like keep hanging out outside on the stairwell they're like two and three and nobody's watching them. And she goes out with her video camera and sees, and one of the little boys has a diaper that's kind of fa almost falling off, covered with fecal matter. And you're just thinking, what mother could do this? And I think that's where people's minds go when they go, we can't give that mother permission to be self-compassionate. Yeah, but I think that one of the points you made earlier is so important that, that focusing on permission separates us from other people. It, it does protect us a little bit from having to contemplate that, I, well, I could never be, I could never do that. I don't give permission. I don't, I don't make excuses because that's a whole other thing that I'll never do. Compassion requires that we see our connection. Compassion requires that we see ourselves in that person and imagine what would have had to have happened to take place in order to end there. And I think that that's hard. If you didn't learn that as a child, or an adolescent, it, it's hard to be asked to find yourself in someone um, who is struggling at that level. Well, and the idea that compassion and accountability can't be together. And, and here's what it also brings to me. There are people out there that for whatever reason, whether it is psychological or moral, um, there is a, and I, it's probably a small percentage, but like they're just, they are doing outright evil things. Mm -hmm and they do not care. Whether they do not care because they have some sort of psychological whatever going on that prevents them from tapping into that empathy or they just don't, that exists. Mm -hmm. And I think what a lot of people worry is that what if you know my mother who mistreated me horribly, what if she was listening to Casey Davis and Casey Davis was saying, oh, let yourself off the hook. Not all moms are perfect. You know, you're doing your best. Like then that would have given my mom permission to like can feel right. But in my experience, people who are doing like evil, abusive things to people don't need permission to do them. Not only do they not need permission to do them, like they're going to do them either way, but you know, they also aren't stopped by shame. They aren't permitted by 
permission and they're not stopped by shame. So at some at some level, like I don't actually worry that much about some sociopathic person, you know, getting permission, quote unquote, because like they're going to get that permission from themselves, from somewhere else. It doesn't matter. I worry more about the person like the woman that was my client a while back who relapsed on heroin while she was pregnant. And she sat in that group therapy every day and she could not stop beating herself up. She could not stop being consumed with a feeling of failure and worthlessness. She recognized I have done this horribly harmful thing to my child. She recognized, yes, I have a brain disorder of addiction and she felt 100% accountable. And I can tell you that sitting in that group over and over and over, the majority of the way in which she was not able to show up for her child the way her child needed at that time was not related to the fact that she used heroin when she was pregnant. It was related to the fact that she now hated herself to such a degree. She had basically frozen herself psychologically with how worthless she felt. And we all know what kind of life choices we make when we feel like we're worthless, right? We get with the wrong people. We self-sabotage ourselves at work. You know, we don't put in effort to maybe making progress in therapy because at some point that motive of, I want to get better, Mm -hmm. but when you're saddled with, I don't deserve to be better, right? And so that of course is compromising her sobriety Mm -hmm. and putting at risk, not only not showing up for her kid the way she needs to, but dying if she relapses again and I'll never forget her because we're so afraid that if we were to give this mom permission to have self-compassion on herself, to gently look upon her suffering with concern and kindness, that that would lead to her sort of quote unquote, letting herself off the hook, not taking accountability, not learning how to change her behaviors, But in my experience, we've really got it flip-flopped. It is that radical self-compassion that allows that mom to stand up and start to recognize what her values are, how her behavior in the past hasn't matched those values, and not be too ashamed to ask for help changing herself so that she can live up to those values in the future. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. 
Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Yeah, I think, you know, shame is a closed door. It's a period at the end of a sentence. There's nothing that comes after shame. Shame is the reason, right? Because I'm bad, because I can't help it, because I'm broken. But self-compassion leads us to questions like, how did it get here and what would have to happen for this to be different? It's an open door. It's, it's multiple open doors, in fact. And if we can learn to view ourselves in that way and each other, um, I think we start asking the questions that actually do get us moving and are motivating. Um, It's interesting, shame really does feel motivating, even though it isn't. That's an interesting phenomenon, it always has been for me, and so it can be hard to break away from that pattern. You know, I have this weird um, theory about shame. Have I ever told you this? Mm -mm. Mm-mm. So, so. um, most of the therapists that I practice with talk about how there's really only seven primary emotions. Like if you think of like a color wheel, there's like untold, you know, different hues, mm-hmm. but they all kind of come back to one of seven emotions. So there's um, fear, anger, pain, loneliness, joy, guilt, and shame. Mm-hmm. Now, I actually um, would replace shame with disgust, mm-hmm. right? Like disgust, because we feel that mm-hmm. for lots of things. And disgust is this really interesting beast because it's both an emotion and like a sense, mm-hmm. like a, you know, like touch, smell, disgust. And so when we think about like what the role of disgust is, when I think about things that disgust me, you think of like poop mm-hmm. and vomit yeah. and pus and open sores. And like, what's interesting about that and is that he, almost exclusively like or almost a, a unanimous, whatever word I'm looking for, it's like all human beings of all cultures experience disgust at these things, almost like it's biological, right? Yeah. And it's smart because when I feel disgust, I want to get away from something. Mm-hmm. And it's really smart for human beings to have this sense of disgust towards things that could get them sick. Mm-hmm. And I think that some of that overlaps socially, right? Like what we feel disgust at socially is typically what society is rejecting or pushing out. Mm -hmm. And so we don't want to associate with that. We don't want to mate with that. We don't want to get sort of looped into the same category. And this is why, like, I think when you look at a lot of the phobias, like homophobia, fat phobia, there's a real element of disgust in it. Mm -hmm. And we want to get, we want to put that thing as far away from, we want to separate ourselves from it because that's the thing that is going to be pushed out and we don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And 
I really believe that shame is just disgust at oneself. Mm -hmm. And, and but you, you you can't get away from the thing you're disgusted by. Exactly. You cannot get away from yourself. You believe yourself to be something that is should be put out, should be rejected. Um, and yet the other part of you is fighting for what is on a very basic level, life and death, which is inclusion in your pack. Yeah. And, and so it feel like you said, it feels motivating. Mm -hmm. Oh God, I gotta, get, I gotta stop this. I gotta get away from this. I gotta fix this or I'm gonna, it's not motivating. It's just panic. Panic feels like motivation. But I haven't really seen, I mean, you can get a little movement, right? Like when I um, scream at my kids and I feel shame afterwards, there's that, this isn't my values. Mm -hmm. Like that's like the gift of shame is it tells me when I'm not behaving in line with my values, but that's it. Like it's just information. Mm -hmm. Shame can give you information. Mm -hmm. And if we take that information and then practice self-compassion, we can then do something with that information to actually change, but it can only give you information. It can't give you momentum. It can't create change. And so what we do with that information matters, right? Like we, depending on what we believe about ourselves, we can either bury the information. Oh my God, I don't act within my values. I must be a piece of shit. I just screamed at my kid. I can't let anyone know that I do this. I'm going to go drink to not feel about it. Right. And then it gets worse and worse, or we can go, wow, that's not the kind of parent I want to be. And, Mm -hmm. I'm probably experiencing a universal experience right now and I'm going to reach out for help and I'm going to get support and I'm going to figure out what's going wrong so that I can be different. And that's the small shifts I think that compassion allows us to have. And maybe that's another piece of this is I think it may be difficult for folks to imagine going from a place of shame-based behavior to a place of self-compassion. I mean, th those seem like poles, but in actuality, self-compassion just enables you to make a thousand tiny shifts and they don't always have to be in one direction. So I still experience, I do this for a living. Uh, I talk to amazing people like you. I still experience shame. I'm looking at a side of a room right now that does not bring me joy. Uh, but when you practice self-compassion enough, that shift becomes very quick. And what you what happens or starts to happen is I notice the shame and I gently shift towards self-compassion. It becomes just a learned behavior that you can then pass down to children. I love it. Thank you so much. This was so wonderful. Thank you for having me. Of course. Oh, hey everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. 
And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it.